Welcome to Crimes and Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking with me. You are great. The feedback I'm receiving is amazing. I did not expect people to like it as much as you have, unless you're lying to me, in which case, please keep lying. The plan originally today was to probably bounce over to the West Coast, continue our tour across America, but I found a story that I couldn't quite resist telling. And that is what I'm terming the lady in the attic. It kind of combines my favorite things and not really favorite things. Children, specifically creepy children. I don't love children in general, but when they're horrifying ghost-seeing children like I was, I was a Haley Joel Osment wannabe when I was a kid, and uh, this story has it all. It has history. It has an Emily Dickinson connection, for goodness sakes. So settle down with your coffee, tea, glass of wine, vodka on the rocks. I'm not judging. And hear the tale of the spirit of Jane Woodman. In 2004, the Kahn family moved into their newly restored Victorian home in Newton, Massachusetts, after months of extensive renovations. The house was stripped down to the studs and essentially rebuilt from scratch. Jeff and Donna Lynn were incredibly proud of their work and couldn't wait to raise their four-year-old daughter, Julielle, within its walls. A few weeks after moving in, Donna Lynn was in the kitchen unpacking some of the remaining knickknacks while Julielle played upstairs on the third floor. Mommy. Donna Lynn jumped, nearly dropping a crystal vase. Julielle, you scared me half to death. There's a light upstairs and it's floating all over the attic. A little scared, Donna Lynn asked, what on earth are you talking about? Can you show me? She gently set down the vase and followed her daughter up the stairs. There, in the storage space on the third floor, she saw what her daughter was seeing. One of the old lights was swinging back and forth. Oh, honey, she said, pulling the drawstring chain to turn it off. It's just the light. There's nothing to worry about. And you shouldn't be playing in here anyway. Let's get back into your playroom. A couple months went by with no strange utterances by Julielle, and the family had settled fully into their new home. However, one evening, Donalyn was tucking Julielle into bed, and as she did so, Julielle, just on the cusp of sleep, whispered slowly to her, She speaks to me, you know. Who? Donalyn asked. Who speaks to you? She told me she used to live here. Who? Who used to live here? Donalyn asked again. But Julielle had already drifted off into sleep, and she didn't want to risk waking her. Concerned and anxious, Donalyn quickly made her way back to her bedroom and recounted the strange exchange to her husband, Jeff. They both agreed it was odd, but chalked it up to her young imagination, and they wouldn't press her on it unless she brought it up again. The next morning, while Donna Lynn was having her morning coffee, Julielle hopped down the stairs, joyful, ready for the day, wearing a pair of blue jeans and her hair down at her shoulders. Mommy, she said. Yes, Julielle. I have to change. Why, Jules? What's wrong with what you're wearing? It's not ladylike to wear pants. Now, where would you get that idea? Well, she told me I need to wear my hair in a bun and wear dresses and tights. Julielle continued, holding out an elastic to her mother. 
Now, who told you that? Donalyn laughed as she put Julio's hair into a tight bun. Mrs. Woodman, Julio said excitedly as she grabbed her backpack. Who? She wears tights and dresses and always has her hair in a bun, Julio said with all the excitement of a five-year-old. It must be an old teacher's aide or the school librarian, Donalyn thought to herself as she took a final sip of her morning coffee. She sat on the counter and watched Julielle joyfully hop out the door on her way to the bus stop. The day proceeded as usual, nothing out of the ordinary, well, until Donalyn received a phone call from Julielle's kindergarten teacher while at work. Mrs. Khan, I've always been curious. Is your mother-in-law living with you now? No, why? Donalyn asked, confused. Well, you see, ever since he moved into your new house, Julielle has been drawing your family with an older woman, and she invariably scribbles her out. I thought perhaps... No, no, it's just Jeff, Julielle, and myself at the house. Jeff and Donalyn sat in the kitchen, staring at the pile of drawings Julielle's teacher had sent home with her. And just as she had described, in every family portrait there was always an extra woman, and always scribbled out in one way or another. We have to talk to her about this, Donalyn said. Agreed. After dinner, they decided to confront their daughter about the strange woman in her drawings. Julielle, who is this? Jeff asked his daughter. That's the lady upstairs, Julielle said, quite matter-of-factly. Who is the lady upstairs? Donalyn asked, crouching down to be level with Julielle. Mrs. Woodman, she speaks to me, but... Her lips don't move. Donalyn and Jeff were stunned by this and didn't know what to say. But luckily, Julielle kept on talking. She wears a long dress and stockings, but her feet never touch the floor. She says she used to live here with her seven kids. She had five boys and two girls. That's so many kids. Oh, and she was friends with the poetry lady. Dumbfounded, Jeff and Donalyn didn't know how to respond. So they just nodded slowly and put the drawings away. They figured it was best to forego hanging them on the fridge for display. Later that week, during her free time, Donna Lynn went to the local historical society to investigate. And, with the help of an archivist, lo and behold, a Mrs. Jane Woodman used to live at their house, and she had seven children. And she had known Emily Dickinson, Obviously, the poetry lady of whom Julielle spoke. This discovery sent a chill down Donalyn's spine, but yet it was strangely comforting to know that her family wasn't simply going insane. The sightings of Mrs. Woodman continued throughout the years. She was always very friendly to Julielle, but as time went on, she became more and more insistent about something. She had an earthly mission for Julielle to carry out. It's missing. You must find it, she would say over and over and over again. But find what? Julielle eventually stopped seeing Mrs. Woodman after about five years. But Mrs. Woodman still dims the lights and starts their appliances to get their attention and remind them they have a task. Though they still don't know what their mission is, the cons do leave soap in their dishwasher just in case Mrs. Woodman decides to turn it on. But what is Mrs. Woodman looking for? Will her spirit ever rest?
enjoyed that story as much as I did. When I discovered it, I was worried there wouldn't be very much for me to investigate. A lot of the research has already been done for me by Donna Lynn. Shout out to you, Donna Lynn. Yeah, cool. Um, all the details about Mrs. Woodman and her family are true. As any good librarian, I cross-referenced them from the story with census records, cemetery records, property records, the Emily Dickinson Electronic Archives, and newspapers, to be sure. And yes, indeed, everything Julielle told her parents about Jane Woodman was absolutely 100% true. She was born Jane Gridley, she married to a Dr. Woodman, and she went to school with Emily Dickinson. And in fact, there's even a book that talks a great deal about Jane before she was married uh, because the author had a crush on her. Clearly didn't work out for him, so we're not going to go on that further. But there's more to this story than really meets the eye, and this is what I find interesting. So I heard about this story through a short news piece broadcast on the New England branch of NBC's local news, where they interviewed the family and local historians about Mrs. Woodman's spirit, and I embellished the narration a lot for our storytelling portion. I don't know how these events unfolded, but the general outline is the same. Julielle was talking to a woman on their third floor in their attic space, and she miraculously knew everything about her life. So for narration's sake, to make it more interesting, you know, I wrote that little short story, essentially. So I feel like I give a librarian tip in pretty much every episode, so here's another. So yes, this is a news station, but as we know about the fake news media or whatever, all information is created for a purpose. And sometimes leaving out information is just as troublesome as making it up. In this case, information was created for more or less entertainment purposes. It was for the news, but it's one of those fluff stories just to like get your attention. Actually, surprisingly, was not for Halloween. It was done, I believe, in February or January. But anyways, in this case, the people in the story believe everything that they're saying. There's no indication to believe that they're lying to make this up for clout or whatever. But some crucial details were left out that might explain Julielle's strange omniscience about her home's previous owner. And I don't think the family really even realizes itself how she could have learned this information. But once you hear what I learned, you're going to be like, oh, that's a little sus. For starters, in 2002, the home was listed in a tourist publication as a historic site and destination. And it mentions that it was undergoing renovations. So this means that there was possibly some known historical significance to the home before the Khan family officially moved in. It was probably known who owned it and who built it, so it's not like Julielle's parents were the first to discover this information. Clearly this publication knew that it had historical significance, or at least that it was an old house and they probably looked up who made it. I mean, you just don't put a house in a brochure because you think it's pretty. You could, but that'd be dumb. So in fact, who would know about this historic information on this house? Who would know? Hmm, probably the librarians and archivists working at the Newton Historical Society, right? Yeah, and guess who was involved with the Newton Historical Society? It turns out that Julielle's father, Jeff Kahn, was on the board of the Newton Historical Society, and he had been since January of 2001. It was probably his involvement in the historical society that first sparked his interest in the Woodman home. But also Donna Lynn was also really involved with the city of Newton. She served as the city solicitor. 
But all this aside, it doesn't mean that their story isn't true, or at least some version of it isn't true. It's quite possible that Donna Lynn didn't consciously know who owned the house prior, but there is a likely possibility that Julielle could have overheard it in conversation, either from her neighbors or someone at the library or someone at school might have mentioned that that was the Woodward home. Julielle could have retained that information while her parents had it. Maybe her parents had heard it and said it before, but then quickly forgot. But Julielle's little pliable child mind grasped onto that. But also, maybe she did see Mrs. Woodman. I don't know. Kids are creepy. I will give them that. They are creepy little buggers. But also, what was the mission? What was the mission that she was sending Julielle on? It turns out that there is something of Mrs. Woodman's that is missing. It's her tombstone. She also said that Mrs. Woodman was telling her that they needed to buy something. I didn't include it in the narration because it wasn't really creepy. Like, Mrs. Woodman wants you to go to the store to buy eggs. Doesn't have that kind of creepy factor to it. So Julielle said that Mrs. Woodman wanted the family to buy something, and it's probably the tombstone. And you think, oh, well, they know it's the tombstone. They found out that it's missing. They're going to buy it, right? They had all this money to restore this home. The mom's a lawyer. I'm sure they have some money. No, they're like, yeah, um, not going to buy it. So I guess they're just going to let Jane Woodman's spirit just writhe in agony for eternity. Good job, Con family. Like, can't you just set up a GoFundMe? I'm sure that there are a lot of people that would donate to this ghost's need for a headstone, even just people who love history in the town. It's not hard. It seems a little selfish to me, but sure, let Jane be stuck in between dimensions. It's totally fine. So it seems a little selfish, especially since it seems like Mrs. Woodman has been on this mission for a long time. So after World War II, the original house was divided up into apartments. And at some point while the Kahn family was living there, a previous tenant of the apartment showed up at the home to see how the renovations were going, to see what they did with the place. And at some point during that interaction asked if they had seen the lady on the third floor. So poor Jane has been doing this for a long time. They finally found out what this ghost wants, and they're like, mm, yeah, but no, sorry. So that's that. I feel like the records that I found aren't very exciting. There's some letters from Emily Dickinson that briefly mentioned Jane. There is the census records that showed that she lived there. I believe she gave the house to her daughter because she was listed as a resident with her son-in-law as the head of house and she also lived there with another daughter i believed so it's a big house they were all living there together and this story i can't rule it out completely as this information leakage that might have happened to julielle and then she was just repeating this information back to her family with the added bonus of a spooky floating ghost whose lips don't move when she talks But I also just cannot rule out the fact that there could have been a ghost there at all. Because I know that I'm usually a downer and a skeptic. You know that I love shooting down a ghost story like, I don't know, I I was going to think of some kind of war analogy and I'm just too gay for that. So in this specific case, I'm definitely a major skeptic. Well, I believe that the family experienced something. I do believe there is a very, very high probability that there was some information leakage subconsciously on Julielle's part. I I don't doubt that. It's just undeniable with the connections that the family has with the historical society and the city at large. 
But at the same time, I cannot rule out the presence of a spirit completely, especially when it comes to creepy children. Because I've had my own fair share of experiences with creepy children, and I was definitely a creepy child myself. As a kid, I've heard and seen things that I cannot to this day explain. Most of my experiences were very dark and very frightening. And now you're used to seeing me being a skeptic and being straightforward and logical, but here in this very moment is a very rare instance where you're going to see me turn into an extremely superstitious person. I will not talk about this specific childhood instance, this experience in detail. Maybe I will in the future, but not now, because I'm living back in the house where one of the most terrifying incidents happened to me. And they didn't stop when I was a kid, and it's always been this house, and I'm not the only one that's experienced these things, but I've seen or heard this entity as recently as 2017, and I'm not about to, like, do all that right now. Mm -mm. So while I would normally look for a logical explanation for what happened to me both in 2017 and as a child, I can't write it off as a confused child with the inability to differentiate reality from fantasy. It was just too real, and also it happened to me as a full-grown adult. On another note, one of the homes I grew up in as a child definitely had a ghost. Uh, She had been physically seen as a full-bodied apparition by five people who had no prior knowledge that A, the house was haunted, or B, what this ghost looked like. I'll probably talk about that experience in another episode, maybe a bonus episode where I tell my own ghost stories. But one of these sightings of this ghost were by children, and they were my little cousins who were living with us for a couple of months. So their bedroom was situated at the bottom of the stairs, and the stairs is where this ghost was always seen. And one night, like many nights, as children do, they were refusing to go to bed. And it wasn't a rare occurrence. One of them is on the spectrum, and the other one of them was just a little brat as a child. So I went in and tried to ask why they couldn't just get into bed and go to sleep. And one looked at me and said, We can't sleep. The lady on the stairs keeps watching us. I didn't question it. I never told them about the lady on the stairs, or as I call her, the red lady. So I just laughed and said, okay, and I went to bed and I let them be as loud as I wanted because I was not going to mess with the red lady, but it was just very bizarre. And I don't have an explanation for how they knew that. They could have pulled it out of thin air. Kids do have imaginations. But going off of that, uh, during my research for this story, I wanted to see if there was a scientific reason why children may see what we call ghosts or that they see them more often than adults do. Obviously, children have very active imaginations and pliable minds, which they need in order to develop language skills and motor skills and just basic survival to learn. Their squishy, pudgy brains are just a part of evolution, so they're not able to make all the connections that adults can, and sometimes reality and fantasy can be confused. So I read two articles, again, cited down in the show notes, but one is from the British Journal of Developmental Psychology titled Monsters, Ghosts, and Witches, Testing the Limits of the Fantasy-Reality Distinction in Young Children, and the other is from Child Development titled Revisiting the Fantasy-Reality Distinction, Children as Naive Skeptics. Now, I went into this research probably using a bad approach. So another librarian tip, don't go into things trying to prove your hypothesis. It's just 
a recipe for disaster and feeling like an idiot. As you know, that's confirmation bias. We do it all the time. No one is perfect. Even the best researchers have confirmation bias. You just can't separate yourself from it unless you're a robot. And in that case, please, that scares me. Don't don't be a robot. So yeah, I went in fully expecting to prove that children are just delusional little monsters with squishy brains. And I was actually surprised to find out that they're not as gullible and fanciful as we typically think. Now, this is very complicated. (laughs) These studies had a lot of stats. And as one of my professors from undergrad, shout out to Julie, who is probably listening. Sorry about that 1918 flu epidemic disaster paper that I wrote for the physical anthropology seminar. Yeah, um, especially in 2020. Not a good, mm, yeah, (laughs) I can't do statistics. I'm a librarian. The only numbers I do are like Dewey Decimal and Library of Congress call numbers. There's a lot of stats, which I'm not a statistician and I'm not a child psychologist. But reading these articles, I actually realized that children are like not as stupid as I want them to be. So we think that children believe in pretty much everything like Santa and the Tooth Fairy. And sometimes it's actually just because adults tell them it's real and they trust what adults say because we're supposed to be helping them not die. But other times children are really, really skeptical. And now that I think about it, yeah, they are. I mean, how many times have you told a child something and they're like, I don't know, seems wrong, seems fake. Like even when you tell them a well-known fact, they're like, "Mm, I don't think so. But especially when it comes to fantasy and reality, kids aren't really dumb, at least in terms of what's called fantasy orientation. So from a young age, children are able to distinguish a toy car from a real car. And when their pretend fantasy play is interrupted, they're flexible enough to be able to step out of it for a moment, talk to you, do what they got to do, and then just hop right back into their games. But all in all, children do have trouble understanding what's real and what isn't, which changes as they get older. But they're also good at taking in evidence to change their opinions on the reality status of concepts. Like when you tell a child that Santa's not real, oftentimes they don't push back on it. They'll be like, hmm, I guess this doesn't make sense that Santa Claus can go everywhere in one night. But it's more complicated than this. There's a lot that goes into this. But essentially... I don't think that the fantasy reality distinction in children can really account for all paranormal events that children perceive, though I'm sure it does account for many of them in addition to their very active imaginations. Some people really do just have really weird imaginary friends. But again, my own childhood experiences... They've been corroborated by other people later on in my life who had similar experiences in the same places, um, so I can't really explain it fully. I mean, heck, despite being a diehard skeptic, I will not hesitate to tell you with all seriousness that a dead woman once gave me a book of hers at her own estate sale. It's probably a story for another time, but it's a true story, and it sounds real fake. And as a skeptic, I'm like, yeah, that sounds insane. But that's exactly what happened. So with that little morsel that you're not going to get, um, I will feed you some nice ghost stories. Instead, creepy stories that I've seen online of people's kids acting creepy or siblings acting creepy. I'll link all the sources as usual below. This one is from a, I hate even saying this, a BuzzFeed article, but I like the story. The submitter of this story doesn't have a name, but here we go. We lived in a house on six acres of wooded, swampy land with our two-year-old son. 
One day, after a ride through the woods with my husband, my son started talking about Courtney. We didn't know anyone with that name, so we figured it was just an imaginary friend. But then he started saying that Courtney was a little girl who was trapped under the swamp and said that she was never rescued. Courtney never came into our house, but whenever our son was playing outside, he would walk right over to the trees and start talking to her. We moved out of the house two years later, and our son was hysterically upset that Courtney was still trapped in that swamp. It's spooky and weird, and there's not a way for me to verify this story, but if they really wanted to, they could probably have looked through things for missing Courtney's, but it's one of those stories where I'm like, it could just be made up, but... This lasted for two years, and he was very, like, attached to this imaginary friend. So he's four years old when they left. That's a lot older to hang on to that story and be that visibly upset. Ugh, I don't like it. But let's go on. Let's let's get another story. Here's a short one from Reddit. It wasn't my child, but my little sister. She's a genius and could walk and talk before she was even one. We live on a mountain, so one night, to get her to sleep, we took a car ride. While driving up the mountain, she pointed at the mountainside and said, What's she doing with her baby? Now, we couldn't see anything and just brush it off as her being imaginative. But later, we found out that decades prior, a woman had jumped off the mountain with her infant son. No, thank you. I hate it. Let's keep going. This is from Reddit user Hufflumps and Woozles. Great name. Not my child, but my brother. My grandparents had a guest bedroom that was basically never used. Just a bed and a dresser. Us grandkids would sleep in the living room with the TV anyways. My brother, however, when he was four, loved this guest room. He would go in there by himself and just sit there and talk. No one ever cared that much, but one time my grandma ended up asking him what he did in there. He said that he would talk to his friend John. And she asked him what John looked like, and he described to a T my grandpa's brother who had died before we were born. Not just the generic haircut, clothes, and glasses that he would wear, but also that he was missing one of his fingers. And John had lost one of his fingers to his snapping turtle. And my grandparents never talked about John because he was one of the family subjects that everyone just didn't discuss. I had never even heard of John until years and years later when my grandparents were telling the story to my parents. Another similar story at the same grandparents' house pertaining to me, but that I don't personally remember, was about the same time. My cousin and I were walking around the woods when we were about seven. There was a pond near the house that we were walking to, and apparently we saw a man who told us it was dangerous to walk by the pond and that we shouldn't be by it. So we just walked up back to the house and told our grandparents that we were told we shouldn't walk by the pond, so we ended up coming back. My grandma asked what this man looked like, And supposedly, we described John again. So I'm curious to know what you all think. Do you think that ghosts can see children? No. Do you think children can see ghosts because they're closer to the veil? Just like old people who are dying are closer to the veil so that they can see ghosts? I like to just call it the void. I don't know. I feel like I came from the void. I don't... We're all just from the void and to the void will return. Praise Cthulhu. Yeah, I'm just curious. Do you think that children actually see ghosts because of this paranormal connection to the other side? Or do you think it's overactive imaginations, uh, watching television and subconsciously absorbing something they saw and then repeating it back to you like a little parrot, but a parrot that you eventually have to send through school and buy things for? 
I'm a little skeptical. I think most of the time children are just weird. Their little squishy minds are rattling around in their partially fused skulls and they're not all there. But sometimes I think that they do experience things just like adults sometimes experience things. And that's not saying that these things are necessarily ghosts, but they're things that we just definitely cannot explain. Children recalling their past lives, even though they might have just been watching the Discovery Channel and they're just repeating what they saw. I don't know. I'm a skeptic, so I'll say most of the time I think the kids are just being kids. They're being weird. They're being creepy. But sometimes I do think that their grandparents come in their rooms in the middle of the night and tickle their feet. It's weird, but it's a story I read. I don't know. I hate it. So yeah, uh, that's that. This episode was definitely different than the other ones that I have done. And that's just because I loved this story. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. I know it's not our typical trek through history. But again, I just wanted excuses to read about terrifying toddlers. Next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled spooky historical programming. And then on the 23rd, I am doing a Yuletide slash winter solstice slash Christmas slash epiphany story on Christmas witches because... Hey, we have Santa Claus in the U.S., but Iceland and Germany and Italy all have Christmas witches. And then also, I found out that Santa Claus, or Saint Nick, I guess, used to war with the goddess Artemis. He would destroy her temples because he thought she was taking people away from God. And then apparently, Artemis sent a bomb to one of his shrines. I don't know. History is crazy, y'all. That's why I love anthropology. You get to learn that Artemis had a war on Christmas. Who knew? So thank you again for listening. Thank you for all the really kind reviews and feedback. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad that everyone is loving this as much as I'm enjoying making it. So yes, the giveaway also is still going on. In our Yuletide episode, I will be announcing the winners of that. So if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review and then either DM me on Instagram or send an email to crimesandwitchdemeanors at gmail.com letting me know that you did leave a review so I can enter you for the giveaway. If you've already done that, feel free to tell a friend or two who might enjoy this podcast. Let's grow our little community of bibliographers. As much as I've heard many of you hate that pun, I resent it, but um, I'm going to keep using it. I don't care that you hate it. So until next time, when your niece or nephew points to the corner of the room and says, the lady with the red eyes is coming, just ignore him. It's probably just their imagination, right? Bye. And good luck with that shadow lady. She looks kind of creepy. (laughs) 